You know, I have this weird sensation. I know that 2020 is coming to a close, and yet it feels like it's never going to end. <laughs> Does anyone have that same sort of, of, uh, of feeling about it? You know, it's kind of like you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. It's, it's this, this strange... You know, Hotel California was really about a state of mind. 2020 has become a state of mind. It's become a way of doing things that we have gotten used to, that have become etched into our spirits in a certain way. <laughs> I remember back, the, the, we actually officially closed the effect and had our first streaming-only Sunday morning on March 22nd. And I remember thinking as we were doing that first Sunday morning, you know what, we'll be open again for Easter, which was three weeks it was April 12th. And I was thinking, not only were we going to be open again for Easter, but it was going to be full again, like it always is on Easter, you know, kind of bursting at the seams in this small room. Silly wabbit, right? Who could have predicted? Nine months later, we're looking at realizing that we're going to still be under COVID restrictions for Christmas. How could we have known this? This year just seems to continue to go and go and go. And even if state restrictions are lifted, they're not the things that are the most important anymore, it seems like to me. Even if the state restrictions were lifted, when are people going to feel safe again? When are we going to feel safe again? About coming back and living life the way we used to, connecting with people face-to-face -face the way we used to. If the state tells us that we can check out, are we really going to leave? Is that what it's going to take? Just someone saying, okay, ollie ollie and free, it's okay now. No. This state of mind, this year has gotten etched into us and has changed our perception of life, changed the way we look at things. It has raised fears that we didn't fear before, but now we do. Now we think about things that we didn't think about before, and now we do. It's really been interesting. And COVID is not just the only thing that's been going on. And COVID is not going, it's actually ramping back up again. You know, we're talking about going purple here in Orange County again and talking about new lockdowns. And it's not just COVID for this year either. Obviously, we had the civil and the racial unrest. And that went on for month after month after month and was really only eclipsed by the elections. And the elections... Yeah, don't get us started on the elections, right? You know, it used to be you had an election day. Everybody knew what the day was. You woke up in the morning, and you went in, and you voted. And then at night, before you went to bed, you know who won. Seems kind of quaint now, doesn't it? You, do you remember election night concession speeches? <sighs> kind of a thing of the past, isn't it? Now elections go on for weeks or months themselves with mail-in voting, and then there's 11 or 4 days of actual face-to-face -face voting, and then there's still ballots coming in after Election Day. It has become something that has stretched out and seems never to end. And we still don't have an official winner. There's still all these questions that are continuing to roil. It's like 2020. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. And I was thinking about it last night is that it's beginning to me to feel like a war of attrition. Ever heard of a war of attrition? You know what a war of attrition is? A war of attrition is one that you don't actually fight to win directly by beating the enemy. You fight it by wearing the enemy down. 
You wear the enemy down by a consistent and persistent loss of resources, both personnel and material, small-scale things that you just do, wear them down, wear them down, wear them down. seems like that's what we're dealing with right now. We're being worn down. I've been doing so much more counseling. I think I've said that last few weeks because it just keeps ramping up. So much more counseling, and people are being worn down. That's what I'm hearing them say. All of the things that, that have had to have been dealt with, things that we didn't have to deal with before this year, you know, it's just logistics. It's financial. It, it's trying to find space to work with kids that are now running around in your house. It's all those things that just are wearing us down little by little. You know, we could handle it at first. It was even kind of novel at first. Ooh, I could stay home in my PJs and work. How cool. Nine months later, not so much. It's wearing us down. Things that you used to be able to do in your work that you kind of took for granted aren't there anymore. It wears us down. I was talking to a pediatric nurse who works in the PQ, they call it, the pediatric ICU. There is now a COVID rule for the hospital that because of COVID, only one parent can be with the child at a time. I want you to think about that for just a second. It seems like a simple thing. Your child is dying. And you can't be with your spouse there with your child. Think about what that does. The nurse was saying that she called it an emotional soak. She said, you have no idea how much the nurses have to soak in of the emotion that is coming off of these parents, the parent. She says, I've been in there with a, a, a mother just uncontrollably sobbing all alone with her comatose child. And she sat in there for hours holding a hand. Yeah, she has other things to do, but she would just stay there. She said, sometimes the parents end up in the room together. She says, I just pull the curtain. I know it could cost me my job, but I'm not going to tell one of them to leave. And not only does the other parent have to not be in the room, the other parent has to not even be in the building at the same time. So they're waiting in their car for the whole time. I mean, these are the kind of things that are going on, and we don't hear about these. We don't realize the toll that it's taking on people, the emotional soak that has to happen. And so I've been hearing about other folks, too. They have their elderly parents or relatives, and they can't go visit them, or they can't go visit them together as a family. Same kind of thing, the stress that it causes, even sometimes the guilt that it causes, that they're not there for their relatives. And it's wearing us down. It's wearing us all down. And if you listen to the news, there's no end in sight, right? It's ramping up. It keeps on going. So you might want to ask, who actually wins a war of attrition? Who wins? It's the one with the most resources who wins a war of attrition, the one that can last the longest, who has the most soldiers, who has the most material. How do you win a war of attrition? You've got to keep those resources flowing. It's the only way that you can do it. You keep the resources flowing how do we do that? You know, if we're looking at the war of attrition as a metaphor, which we are, we're looking at it as a metaphor for our spiritual journey, for life in general, we're looking at it as a metaphor for 2020 in particular, then our resources are going to be those that are spiritual, 
They're going to be our spiritual transformation. They're going to be our emotional regulation. They're going to be our psychological health. Those are our resources that we bring to bear when we're just living our lives. When we're trying to move through difficult times, they're going to be our attitude toward life. It's going to be our sense of humor. Can we hang on to that? Can we keep that flowing? Can we keep a positive attitude flowing? Marion was talking about how she keeps her attitude flowing to get up every day and do the things that she needs to do. How do we keep that flowing? It's our ability to stay present is a huge resource for us. To stay present to each other, exercising grace, that ability to continue to give that unmerited favor, that love. If we lose all of those, we collapse. If we lose all of those, we lose this war of attrition. We will get worn down. And so the question is, and how do we keep on? How do we keep and hold on to this stuff? How do we hold on to our emotional regulations, our spiritual integrity? How do we hold on to our psychological health, our sense of humor, our attitude? How do we keep all of these things intact? Ever tried to use solar lights for your landscape lights? <laughs> I've tried several times. It seems great, you know? It's just this little thing. You just put it in, you point it at the sun, and then it's supposed to light up. You don't have to string a bunch of wires. You don't have to dig anything up. It's great, right? I've always been disappointed. They just don't light up enough. You know, it's just not enough light there. It's a little pinprick. It's like, I need light. You don't want to see something coming up the trees. If you want that kind of light, you're going to have to plug into the grid. There's just no other way around it. Those little batteries aren't going to give you what you need got to plug into the grid. Another metaphor, right? Metaphors on top of metaphors here. You see where I'm going with this? You want to keep the resources flowing in your life. Then under your own steam with the battery that you carry around all day, it's not going to be enough. We're going to need to plug into the grid somehow. We're going to need to get our cables connected. Now, the New Testament gives us yet another couple of metaphors for this. And I want to go through those with you. One is from Paul, and the other one's from Jesus. And they're different, but they're pointing in the same direction. And I think it's important for us to get both the difference and the connection so we can kind of see where are they going? Where's Jesus going? Where's Paul going? What are they pointing to? Let's take a look at Ephesians. This is a very famous passage. Chapter 6, starting at verse 10. It's the famous armor of God passage, right? You all familiar with it? Paul says, finally, this is right at the end of his letter to the Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Plug into the grid, right? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forms of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith 
which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, a lot of it has been made about the fact that you, know, you can't necessarily make one-to-one correspondence between all the pieces of ancient armor and the actual attributes that he's talking about. But that's less important, I think, for our purposes right here. What we're really talking about is that Paul is entreating us, imploring us, and giving, an, giving us a metaphor so we can visualize what it means to plug into God's grid what it means to plug into God's resources just as a warrior dons his or her armor, to gird up with truth, with righteousness, with the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. If we're consciously armored this way with God's resources, we're not going to be worn down if those things are present in us, right? But Paul's metaphor has a problem. And it's not a problem with the metaphor itself. It's fine for for what it does. The problem is with the mindset that it can create if we take it too far. Now, the people that I've encountered that primarily see themselves as warriors, who primarily have that metaphor in mind as they go through life, tend to see life as a battlefield, spiritually and culturally at the same time. They're constantly fighting battles. Like a warrior, they're constantly looking over their shoulder for the next threat. They're going through life in a defensive crouch. They're constantly thinking about the weapons that they are going to need to be able to survive, to be able to overcome every day's battles. And it becomes a way of living life. Their mindset defines their attitude toward life. Always seeing threats everywhere that they go. Their vocabulary becomes military vocabulary. Have you noticed that? Some Christians talk with a military vocabulary. They're always talking about life as though it were a battle. And the warrior's life itself then is what begins to wear us down. It is the attitude and the reality of life as a warrior that wears us down, and not life itself. Because it's not about a lack of resources. It's about the way that we go through life, the way that we see life. And the church has grabbed on to this warrior metaphor and run with it in ways that I don't think Paul ever intended. In fact, I think Paul would be appalled. Come on. I think Paul would be appalled that we took one of his passing illustrations, a passing metaphor, and turned it into a primary mindset, a primary way for us to deal with life. I don't believe that that's what he intended at all. Why? Because he doesn't use it over and over again. It's not a major theme in his writing. He uses a lot of different metaphors. He likes sports metaphors. He talks about running the race. He's lots of things that he uses, but he doesn't grab onto this and hold onto this. And the second reason that I don't think that it was meant by Paul to be a primary metaphor for life is because Jesus never uses it. Jesus doesn't talk about the warrior as the metaphor. 
Now he does mention swords a couple of times, but those are usually metaphors themselves, or he's speaking against the use of the sword, but he doesn't use the warrior as a primary metaphor for life. He uses another metaphor, and he uses it over and over and over again. It is a major theme in Jesus' teaching, and I don't think it's a theme that Paul would dispute at all. I think we took one of Paul's metaphors and turned it into a huge thing that didn't need to be. If you want to look at the relative importance of a subject in Scripture, look at how much it's used. Look at how much it's repeated. Look at how much of a deal is made over and over again. And when you do that and you look at Jesus' teaching, what is he always talking about? He's always talking about gardeners. He's always talking about farmers. This is a major theme in Jesus' teaching. He's always talking about gardeners growing things. Now, if you think about it, there is literally no more direct metaphor for maintaining the flow of resources in our lives than a gardener, than a farmer who is actually growing things. That act of gardening itself Right? Working with every source of energy that the earth has to offer. Think about it. There's sun, there's wind, there's water, there's earth. For the gardener, the farmer, to move in rhythm with the turning of the planet, with the turning of the seasons, with the patterns of wind and weather and rain, to stand there looking at the sky with feet sunk deep into rich black earth, This is the life of the farmer. This is the life of the gardener. Deeply connected to the resources that God gives us every single day. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. You want a primary metaphor for the way that you can live this life that sometimes feels like a war of attrition when you're getting worn down to the nub and you're wondering if you can get up one more day and do this again? How cut off are you from the resources that God has to give? The gardener stays in concert with all that. I found a little article that I thought he did a pretty good job of trying to describe this. Why Jesus talked so much about agriculture. That's the title of the little blog post. But he says, Jesus used scenes from everyday farm life to illustrate his points about the gospel and the kingdom of God. For a long time, these stories worked without much thought or explanation. Our churches were filled with farmers. You know, originally, churches started at 11 a.m. Church service started at 11 a.m. You know why? Because it gave farmers a chance to do all the chores that they needed to do for the morning, and then they could come to church. Interesting, huh? Everything was agriculturally based not so long ago. Just go back 100 years, you know? And in some areas, it's still there, right? Our churches were filled with farmers, but fewer and fewer of us have now grown up on farms. And thus we miss a lot of subtle points that Jesus is making. For one thing, farming is hard work. That seems like a duh. Yeah, but we forget about that, right? Our food just comes under cellophane on the little nicely lit and refrigerated racks in 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 the store. How do we know how it got there? We don't know anymore. We're so disconnected. Farming is hard work. 
Farmers work 365 days a year, regardless of the weather. Animals have to be fed. Crops have to be fertilized and watered. And it doesn't matter how the farmer feels on that particular day. The work still has to be done. Farming takes time. You can't speed up nature. Cows, like people, reproduce in about nine months. Can't speed that up. Corn takes anywhere from 90 to 100 days to be ready to be harvested. Nature takes its own time. A million factors can control the time it takes for the crop to ripen. The amount of rain, the warmth of the days, the cool of the nights, soil condition, insects, the list goes on and on. The farmer knows the importance of good soil. Rocks are removed from the field. pH has to be balanced. Soil has to be turned over. And sometimes fields need to rest. The farmer knows how to look at the soil and know when it is ready to grow crops. The unexamined field soon becomes unusable. Patience is a required virtue for a farmer. Some things just dictate their own schedule. The smart farmer knows when the moment is ready. On some days, the only thing the farmer can do is sit and wait. No wonder Jesus talks so much about farming. The day-to-day chores, tasks, and the attention required to the smallest detail made farming an unforgettably rich metaphor for Jesus and his teachings. The animals have to be tended. The fields have to be checked. The work is never done. A good reminder for what is required from us every day of our own lives. And when Jesus is not talking about farmers, what's he talking about? Typically fishermen and shepherds starting to catch his drift where he's going with all of this, plugged in to the rhythms of life, plugged in to the resources that God gives in such abundance. (coughs) All these livelihoods that Jesus talks about, and especially the farmer or the gardener, are in stark contrast to the staccato kind of feel of the warrior's life. Think about the warrior's life. It's almost a binary on and off, high intensity in in the field of battle, and then waiting endlessly for the next orders. High intensity, off, on and off, that staccato sort of feel between orders and deployment, and then back, waiting again. Whereas gardening is a constant, even flow of just showing up day by day, with attention to the smallest detail, the seemingly insignificant things, the things that will never crack a headline. No one's going to get too excited about your gardening. You may, but no one really is going to get too excited about you showing up every day to do the smallest things to make that plant grow. Constant, even flow. Not like the armor being put on just once, but a daily engagement. But it's even more than that. It's hugely more than that, what Jesus is trying to get across, I believe. Take a look at Mark 4. Starting at verse 26. This is typically the parable of the growing seed, is what it's usually called. And interestingly, it's sandwiched right between the parable of the sower and the parable of the mustard seed. Like Mark 4 is just a whole series of gardening and farming parables. But this one, this little short one here, and Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts, casts seed upon the soil. 
and then he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What is the most striking detail of that story? See, for me, it's that this work of regeneration, this work of new life, this work of resources flowing happens while the farmer is sleeping. He's not doing a thing. He has no idea how it works. Unlike the warrior, planning, strategizing, worrying, anticipating, making things happen by sheer force of will, blood and guts, as Patton used to say. The farmer is sleeping when the most significant thing happens, when the actual miracle takes place. The gardener is simply sleeping and has no idea how these things work. If really that's what's going on, you show up every day and you diligently work hard to produce the type of environment, the possibility for the miracle to happen, but you have no control over that. It happens in its own time. It happens while you're sleeping. You just get up and here's this gift that you could never give yourself, ever. You create the possibility in your life, but the gift comes while you're sleeping. That's got to create in you a sense of humility, doesn't it? It's got to create a sense of dependence, a sense of vulnerability, because you're not really in control. You can set the process in motion. You can make sure that the conditions are right. But when it comes right down to it, it's going to happen while you're sleeping. There has to be a sense of immense gratitude. Any of you have grown anything, and I've grown next to nothing, but I did once stick an avocado pit with pick, toothpicks in a glass of water. And when that little green head popped up, that was the coolest thing in the world, isn't it? See, you know what I'm talking about, Paris. It's the coolest thing. That little thing shoots up and it's like, wow. You know, it actually happened. It actually worked. I did something right. Wow. But the thing is that we didn't do it. That sense of gratitude, that sense of wonder, and the patience patience it takes to just set things in motion and let them go without trying to hurry them. You can't sit there where the little seed packet is and, come on, grow, grow. It doesn't work that way. You just got to go away and go to sleep. Forget about it. Come back and water, sure. Pull the weeds, but then that thing comes up. It's a whole different type of attitude toward life as opposed to the warrior. And think about the warrior. The warrior would see these kind of traits. Think about it. Humility, vulnerability, dependence, patience. Those attributes can be fatal to the warrior. This is the difference here. For the warrior, these type of attributes are hard to maintain. That sense of humility and vulnerability. And if the primary metaphor or our attitude toward life and the flowing resources is the gardener now, 
Does that mean that we're never warriors? See, this is where it's really easy for us to fall back into dualistic thinking. This is where it's real easy for us to just go either or and say, okay, yeah, it's supposed to be the gardener now, forget the warrior. No, it's never either or, it's always both and. Of course there are times that we have to fight. Of course there are times that we have to take on the attitude of the warrior in order to get from point A to point B, in order to do what we're here to do, which is to protect life which is to grow relationship and knit it tightly together, which is to be able to see the unseen spirit of God in each moment. In order to do this, that and fulfill that purpose, sometimes we need to be warriors. But even if we are being warriors, we still need to have the gardener's heart at the same time. Jesus is saying, when you need to be a warrior, be a warrior with a gardener's heart. In other words, the gardener creates the state of mind. The gardener creates the attitude that is the primary way that we live life, even when we need to move out in different ways. When we need to be warriors in life, can we still be a humble warrior? Can we be a happy warrior? If we can do that, we're keeping the balance. We're not violating each principle. We're bringing both and together. We're bringing the extremes to a vibrant center, a sacred place. On the other hand, the gardener is not passive. This is something that we need to understand. The gardener is not passive. Just as Jesus is not passive, the gardener can be intense. The gardener can be passionate, even unyielding, as unyielding as any warrior at times. Just as nonviolence is not passive. We talked about this earlier on when the racial unrest was at its peak, and we talked about Gandhi, and we talked about Martin Luther King and how they handled nonviolence, and they would chafe at anyone thinking that nonviolence was some sort of milquetoast middle or some sort of passive acquiescence. No, not for them. Nonviolence was active. Nonviolence was actually aggressive. Nonviolence was unyielding. Nonviolence actually would seek out nonviolent confrontation with power to be able to bring the issues right to the fore, but nonviolently. Do you see the difference? We sometimes think that the gardener or this nonviolent attitude is the passive role, is the weak role. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just as love itself is not weak, is not passive. Now it's become that in our culture, really. In our culture, love has become equated with mere sentimentality or with romantic love. And when we say all you need is love and everybody kind of rolls their eyes because like, what are you talking about? We got real issues here and you're talking about love? But love understood properly, understood the way we're talking about nonviolence, the way we're talking about gardeners. If we bring that full understanding of what it means to be someone who works with the flow of nature, who works with the resources, who sees everything as one thing moving through the cycles of life, things start to change. There's a young woman who was quoted by Richard Rohr, and this hit me, and I just thought, this is perfect. She talks about love as being revolutionary love. 
And she wrote this, Love is more than a feeling. Love is a form of sweet labor, fierce, bloody, imperfect, and life-giving. A choice we make over and over again. If love is sweet labor, love can be taught, modeled, and practiced. This labor engages our emotions. Joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger protects that which is loved. And when we think we have reached our limit, wonder is the act that returns us to love. Revolutionary love is the choice to enter into wonder and labor for others, for our opponents, and for ourselves in order to transform the world around us. It is not a format, code, or prescription, but an orientation to life that is personal and political and rooted in joy. Loving only ourselves is escapism. Loving only our our opponents is self-loathing. Loving only others is ineffective. All three practices together make love revolutionary. And revolutionary love can only be practiced in community. You see, this, I think, is a love that a gardener or a farmer would recognize. This is a love that parallels, is is a perfect analogy for the act of gardening itself. Love is a form of sweet labor, fierce, bloody, imperfect, and life-giving, a choice we make over and over again. That's love as gardening. It's showing up every day to the choice that we make. It's not putting armor once and for all and thinking now we are girded, now we are covered. It's not fighting one battle and thinking that we have won the war. It's showing up every day. Life, and especially year 2020 in particular, may feel like a war of attrition. But if we fight it as a war then we've already lost before we even started. We will be worn down by that war. The way to win a war of attrition is to keep the resources flowing, keep them replenished. And the way to keep the resources flowing and replenished in our life is changing our, our state of mind, changing the way we define the whole field from warrior back to gardener. Can we do that? Can we make that change? Can we step away from the anger, from the defensiveness, from the strategy, from the tribal partisanship of the warrior? Can we start to see life under different terms by burying our feet deep in wet earth, in day-to-day intimacy, in conversation, in the work, in the care for others, in the grace that we show and extend to others, showing up every day, getting dirt under our fingernails every day. This is the only way that Jesus says it works for us. 2020 and Hotel California are a state of mind. They get into you, and it's very difficult to get them back out. But if you want to leave... You can't just check out, as the song tells us. You have to change your metaphor first. 
You have to change your paradigm first. You have to change the values by which you approach life first. Because once you do that, once you really change the way you look at life, now your behavior can change. And once your behavior changes, now your mindset can change. And if your mindset changes to the gardener and you become a more humble person, a more grounded person, a more patient person, a more vulnerable person, and what starts to come into your life is this flow of resources and that little green blade pops up out of the avocado pit, I'll tell you what, if you're experiencing gratitude, if you become a grateful person, you've already won. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for little green blades of grass that can remind us of the huge things that they represent. Things that we take for granted, things that we don't even see anymore because they seem so mundane, they seem so insignificant, but they are the trailhead to this journey of, of abundance that you have given us. Help us to see those trailheads. Help us to see the entry points to the kind of resources that you have for us, the constant flow of who you are. Help us to see ourselves more and more as gardeners who sometimes have to fight than fighters that sometimes have to grow something. Help us to change the primary way that we deal with each other and you and life so that we can see the rhythms that you have put in place for us, the dance that is constantly going on. Through it all, Lord, thank you for your constancy. Thank you for being the constant gardener to us that you would have us be for each other and for ourselves, which is another way of saying we love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, would you all stand?